Welcome to the DTP podcast for November 2017, volume 55, number 11. My name is David Fazakli. I'm DTP's deputy editor. And I'm James Cave, editor-in-chief. So this month's editorial discusses various issues relating to prescribing and pregnancy. What are the sort of things we cover and what are, what are the key points? So many of our readers will remember the MHRA warning on sodium valproate in pregnancy, which came out in April, and there was real concerns that 30% of women were still unaware of the risks associated with that in pregnancy. And our editorial, in the same token, looks at the fact that many women make decisions to stop taking regular medication when they fall pregnant for fear that they're going to damage themselves or their baby. And we have taken that on and actually pointed out that actually the risk of exacerbations of ongoing conditions like asthma, diabetes, depression, actually can lead to worse outcomes both for the mother and the baby. So the Valparate story really concentrates on women who carried on taking it who were pregnant and the potential harms that it caused, and they were unaware that there was a risk. But equally, there seems to be this issue that people... Or women will stop taking medicines as soon as they find out they're pregnant, again, for fear of harming the developing baby. Well, that's right. And of course, this all goes back to the thalidomide story. And, and the valproate is really important. We don't want to uh, in any way try and, and trivialise that. That is a significantly important issue. But at the same time, what we've got to be so careful about is for every one woman on valproate, there are many, many more women taking important medication uh, which they shouldn't stop. And, you know, we need to remind our readers that the confidential inquiry into maternal deaths has showed the leading causes of deaths are now from medical or mental illnesses in maternal deaths. So it's really important that uh, women should be informed and understand the issues associated with their medication. And a good part of our editorial is providing prescribers with resources that they can use to access information so they can have a proper discussion with women about the medication they're taking before they fall pregnant um, so that women are empowered to make the right decisions for them. So in some ways it is the same issue as the Valparate one which is that there should be a discussion well ahead of pregnancy so anyone who's taking any form of long-term medication needs to have that discussion as whether what the impact would be of pregnancy, what they should do if they're planning pregnancy, so that the plan's put in place before there's a sudden emergency and thinking, oh, crumbs, what do we do with the medication? Exactly right. And so any woman who falls pregnant who's taking medication shouldn't be panicking and thinking, oh, what am I going to do? Because they'll have already had that discussion with their clinicians. So it's about better planning and less responding to, to problems. Yeah, and more information for women in general. OK, thank you very much. And our first main article this month reviews another new treatment for obesity. Earlier this year, we looked at liraglutide, which was just being launched for the management of people who are obese or overweight. Now we've got a new product, a combination product. So question one, what is it? So we have um, MySimba is its trade name, and it's a combination of naltrexone and bupropion. Our prescribers will understand that bupropion is obviously Zyban, which has been uh, licensed for some years now for smoking cessation. And here it is in combination with naltrexone, which is an opioid antagonist. And it's a fixed dose. No one is entirely sure of the modality of action for this drug um, or this combination drug. But it is now licensed for the management of obesity or 
patients who are overweight with an, in a significant associated illness. So a standard license that we're familiar with, with um, things like orlistat and lyroglutide, either obesity or overweight with risk factors. So the question is, what's the evidence for it? What trials were done and what populations did they look at? Yeah, so we've got four studies. Two were used in patients who were, where diabetes was excluded and a good number of those patients in those trials were women, about 80%. We have another trial that looked at patients with non-insulin-dependent diabetes and one more trial that combined behavioural modification with use of the drug in patients with obesity. So we've got four trials looking at what impact this drug had on weight disease. So what were the key outcomes from the trials? So the European Medicines Agency was keen or felt that the best valid outcome to be considered in these trials was what proportion of uh, patients achieved at least a 5% reduction in weight at one year. And through the studies, between about 14 and 28% of patients achieved that. And the overall change from baseline in weight, so the mean difference between loss of weight with placebo and loss of weight with the combination product. Yeah, so that's obviously, so that's the absolute difference between the placebo and the drug group was very between 32 and 4.2%. Okay, so modest changes overall. Yes, I mean, if you looked at sort of higher levels of weight loss, so about 20% of non-diabetics achieved a weight loss of more than 10%, and only about 13% of the diabetic group achieved that sort of weight loss. But what seemed to be quite telling from the study was that the one study that actively had a very intensive behavioural modification arm there, the difference in weight loss for both groups was much higher than the others. That's right. So that was quite telling. You you had a 5% weight loss in, in the placebo group in that group and about a 9% absolute weight loss, on mean weight loss in the treatment group. So there was a very interesting comparing it to the results of the other studies. You know, you had this sort of definite extra effect of the behavioural modification. Particularly when you consider that some of the other studies were only achieving, the placebo group only achieved a 1, 1.5% weight loss, and yet in the behavioural modification group, they got up to 5%. Yes, and, it, and it, looking at what they actually did in in this group, it was over there, it was 20, I think it was a, 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 just a weekly group session with advice on diet and uh, an attempt to increase exercise by really trying to enthuse people to do more. So we've done something about the, the benefits of this. You've mentioned the, heart, the dropout rates, which are always high in these sort of trials, and it's not peculiar to this drug, but all trials, drugs used in obesity seem to have very high dropout rates. What about the harms? So, so as I said earlier, high dropout rates, actually adverse effects high as well. So about 12% levels of severe side effects in the drug group versus about 6% in the placebo group. Nausea, vomiting, headache, big issues. About one in five had uh, psychiatric type uh, adverse events such as sleep disorders or anxieties. So we know from bupropion's use in in Zyban, in in smoking cessation, that it does seem to have quite a high adverse effect. And what guidance have we got on whether it should be used or not be used? So NICE currently does not recommend it. Uh, We think there's an appeal currently in place that uh, has not yet reported. And likewise, SIGN and uh, none of the other home nations have advised its use. So overall, it, it has a small effect 
during the trials, do we know anything about what happens after the one year or if you stop it? Well, this is this is the smoke and, and mirrors issue with all obesity drugs because unless you look at the long-term impact on actual morbidity, you know, how much do we prevent in the way of diabetes or heart disease or other weight-related conditions? You know, what good are we doing? And we have absolutely no information about any of those issues. So, as we've said before, it does a bit, but actually behavioural modifications seem to be the way to go. You know, I don't want to be put my own personal feeling here, but, I, you know, the, the, the golden bullet of a, a diet drug I don't think I'll ever see in my lifetime. OK, we won't hold you to that, but thank you for that. Uh, and our last article looks at the newer anticoagulants, so the direct oral anticoagulants or the non-vitamin K antagonists, whatever you want to call them, DOAX or NOAX. So what do we cover in this article? So we thought it was time to just look at, as you say, NOAX or DOAX, depending on how you want to uh, uh, call them, just to have a review of the issues around the bleeding risk associated with them. So we looked at the four currently licensed direct or novel oral anticoagulants, apixaban, dabigatran, idoxaban and rivaroxaban. And we just looked at the background issues with regard to bleeding risk, how you might manage that bleeding if it should happen, and the, the risk minimization that you might be able to do. So we cover and look at not direct comparisons, but comparisons from studies of what you might expect to see with the warfarin in terms of bleeding. So we're looking at major bleeds, GI bleeds and intracranial bleeds. Yes. Yeah, so one of the difficulties, of course, with, with all studies like this is that sometimes studies have a different definition of what is a major bleed. And so it can be difficult sometimes to compare. But what we, what we found, and I think one of the most useful studies for primary care was the Danish registry study we look at, which looked at 31,000 patients taking direct oral anticoagulant drug for atrial fibrillation. And their absolute one-year risk of a major bleed was between about 2 to 3%, with intracranial bleed risks of between about 0.2 and about 0.4%, which actually, if you compare it to systematic reviews that have compared these DOACs with warfarin, shows that there's a lower risk of um, intracranial bleeding versus warfarin. GI bleeds may be a slightly higher risk. It varies a little bit with which NOAC you're comparing them with. So the real-world experience suggests that you've got less bleeding problems associated with them. While we've had warfarin around for years, we're very familiar with monitoring its use, measuring its activity. What about the DOAX? So this is where things, in a sense, stop being quite so evidence-based and a lot of the current management guidance on how you manage a patient uh, who might be actively bleeding or potentially bleeding because of an overdose with the direct oral anticoagulants, you know, starts to be more based on, on expert opinion and so we look at all that. We look at perhaps what you should do for patients who've had a recent overdose, you know, the use of activated charcoal in the very early stages, the use of wait and see strategy if someone is not actively bleeding. And we also look at some of the new antidotes that are available for, for one or two of the, these anticoagulants. And of course, because they have a much shorter half-life uh, than, than warfarin, obviously they don't don't hang around for as long and therefore you can manage the bleeding risks perhaps a lot easier than you would with with warfarin but as we used to protocols for managing warfarin as you as a gp familiar with what your local area says about 
managing the bleeding risks? Have you got protocols in place for managing bleeding risks of DOACs? Not at all. And I think that's what we wanted to really be able to inform our readers about is, you know, just give them an overview of what the landscape is like at the moment. Because there are, you know, there is a particular antidote. There's a monoclonal antibody for dabigatran, which is licensed for use. And the emergency, Royal College of Emergency Medicine, you know, recommends that it should be available in all A&Es. So there are exact treatments available for some of the DOACs. There are some other treatments in the pipeline. We talk about a new recombinant form of factor 10 and Dexanet, which um, is not yet licensed, and also a, a, a more general broad-spectrum reversal agent that's being looked at at the moment called Siraparant AG-alpha. So there are new drugs that are possibly in development or in the licensing process that we haven't yet seen. And the bottom line? Well, I think the bottom line here is really around risk minimization. We need to make sure that we're looking at the materials that are available for each drug from the Electronic Medicines Compendium. Patients should have an alert card, and uh, this is certainly a learning point for me. I was unaware of that, and I haven't been asking my patients, do they have an alert card, and if not, making sure that they get hold of one. And also, of course, it's really important for all clinicians involved in managing patients that we yellow card report any episodes of bleeding in this group. And perhaps one unmet need or something for the future development is kind of national guidance on how you manage problems with with these drugs they may well be less of a problem than than we've experienced with warfarin but as their use increases then you will inevitably see more people who do have problems and therefore knowing how to manage them will be important absolutely right and you know we now five million scripts of these new drugs to the year ending march 2017 you know that's from a standing start five years ago that's an enormous increase warfarin still double the number of scripts so you can sense that there's a lot more development and much more use of these drugs to come. Okay, thank you very much. To read these in any of our articles, please visit our website at dtb.bmj.com and any comments or feedback, please email dtbeditor at bmj.com. Thank you very much. Music.